friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast hosted by the 8th Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the 8th Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or social media pages linked in the show notes. the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here at the H Street Church, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 23, and we're going to be reading a few verses, starting with verse 32. And I also invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us today from the Gospel of Luke. Hear the Word of the Lord for us on this first Sunday in the season of Lent. Starting with verse 32, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So let us say together, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there Jesus hangs, he's on a cross, he's been beaten, insulted, and now he's stark naked. And as the scene unfolds before us, we peek into a conversation that is happening, uh, that is happening there. It is private, it's an intimate conversation. It is Father, Son, and Spirit. We're listening to God talk, and there is something confusing about what Jesus says here. He says, you should forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Another way to say it would be they have no clue. They don't get it. They obviously don't understand. To that which I would say, really, we can't? It seems pretty clear to me. The scene is chaos. They've stripped him. They've beat him. Women shriek at the sight of him. Now they're gambling for his clothes. Jesus of Nazareth, a poor carpenter's son, has stirred up trouble, and it looks like he's been leading a mob hell-bent on revolt. At least that's what his followers thought. Peter came armed just in case, and Rome can't let that happen. Neither can the Sanhedrin. Jesus of Nazareth is a violator of everything that the Jewish people hold dear. Their laws are precious, and so is their history. Other foreign nations have acted in anti-Semitic ways. They've tried to strip the people of their identity and their language, their heritage. Their laws and their stories held them fast. And this guy, the one that calls him the Messiah wants to reform those laws? Never. They're never going to let that happen. And Jesus has some things to say in his last hours, but the people have words that they say in his last hours as well. They yell those words. He saved himself, or he saved others, let him save himself. They yelled, bring, him, bring us Barabbas. And then finally they yelled, crucify him. They mocked him, dressed him in purple then stripped him naked. 
They placed a crown upon his head, put a sign above him that said, The King of the Jews. And we look at this scene and we think, some kind of king. What is so hard to understand? The scene is pretty clear. They hosted a parade for him. Earlier they yelled, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, is what they said when he rode into town on the back of an ass. But when he didn't do what they thought he should do, the parade turns into insults and slaps. Their words are words of hate, and words hurt. So do fists. They beat him to a pulp. He was too weak to carry the cross by himself, so they made Simon do it. The Gospel writer Mark tells us that Simon's boys, Alexander and Rufus, watched in horror. Then, like a lynch mob, while the crowds chanted and spewed hatred, they hung him out of a tree. It seems to be clear what is happening. But even such, in his last words, Jesus says to his father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. It seems to me, what is so hard to understand? It seemed that they knew exactly what they were doing. In 2004, there was a film that came out called The Passion of the Christ, and it came out on theaters on Ash Wednesday, and the church where I was serving attended. We took everybody. It was brutal. It's a brutal movie. It's gross, and we wanted to be able to have people talk about what they had seen, so we flooded a restaurant and put people in discussion groups, and the thing that I heard over and over and over was this. It was the same statement every single time by every person that was in there, they said, I can't believe he did that for me. And that's where the emphasis was. I can't believe he came to die for me. A me, that is a word that was used. That was the word that was used over and over and over again by everybody. It is our favorite word. And it is the center, or I am the center. Me is the center of, a tr of this tragic story. We really like that word. It is our favorite word. We use it all the time. It's our focus. And we do this because we are human. And as one philosopher said, to be human is tragic. Because when we think of me first, we say, I can't believe he came to die for me. And we emphasize that word. We know that we are the center of this world. So it stands to reason that we can also imagine that we would be the center of the first century world as well, a world that happened 20 centuries ago. But the thing is, is we're mistaken. As my friend Marty Michelson used to say, Jesus didn't come to die for us. He came to show us how to live, and then we killed him for it. Now, once we realize that it's not about me, then we're done. We're done with the whole thing. We want, no, we want no more of whatever is being offered. That is why it's so, it, we're so quick to shout Hosanna in one day and then crucify him on the next. I spend my life trying to control my life. I manage my time by a calendar. I manage my finances by a budget. I manage my weight by exercises, exercise. I, I manage my children by discipline. I manage my Savior with expectations and demands. And when he doesn't meet those expectations, guess what time it is? It's crucifixion time. Life as human beings is not just about being a mess. It's worse. It's tragic. 
And when the Savior doesn't do what we want Him to do, we kill Him and we move on. We try to convince ourselves that it's not tragic, that life is not tragic. So we say words. We talk to ourselves. We say lots of words. We say words like this, work hard, dream big. The possibilities are endless. We believe this, so we bet on ourselves. That's why we have second mortgages. That's why we have so much stuff that we have to keep all of our stuff in storage units. That's why we take vacations we can't afford. That's why we have enormous school debt, and that's why we gamble and drink too much. We're trying to find the solution to the tragic. A rich man in the Gospel of Luke uh, found himself in, in, um, in the tragic and tried to find a, a solution to the tragic. So what did he do? He built barns, lots of barns. He had he'd grown his business, and he needed, he needed a place to store all the stuff that he collected. His goal had always been hard work. Now his goal was to enjoy, eat, drink, and be merry is what the text says. Too bad death snuck up on him in the middle of the night. We try to convince ourselves and even our kids that humanity is not tragic. We say to them, you can be anything you want, but it's really not true, right? We're limited in these human bodies. We're limited in these conditions and the environment around us. We are bound by the reality that we are simply dust, and after a short time, we will turn into dust again. We are limited by space and age, capacity, talent, resources, and opportunities. The American dream is just that. It's just a dream because none of this is really under our control anyway. The famous philosopher Kierkegaard said that that when one becomes self-aware enough to see the reality of our own limitations, it's dreadful to be human. It's tragic. Welcome to church, everybody. Even Even our intentions to do things with pure motives and to do things well are limited to this tragic. We cannot possibly help in all the areas that we want to help because to help in one area is to forego helping in another area. The father that provides college funds for the the children struggles with the tragic because there are no resources left to feed the poor pastor who leaves his house on Christmas Eve because someone is in the hospital experiences the limit the limitations of humanity he gives up time with his family in order to carry out his sacred duties not everything that is good that needs to be done can even be done decisions have to be made and we're confronted every day with our limitations this is tragic This is the existential crisis that we all face as human beings. So what do we do? We act as if we have it all together, as if we can handle things better. We, according to Will Willimon, learn to avoid pain, dysfunctional behavior, and we engage in a more fruitful, beneficial kind of conduct. And now that we know more about our world, we we try to make it our own. But we can't do it. Even love. Even love, real love is tragic. They, they say, at least movies do, say that completeness comes to us in love and when we've found love and that we can avoid the tragedy when we find true love. All the great stories promise it. True love makes, the, makes storming the castle worth it. But love, this great feeling that poets and artists and musicians have tried to describe, It itself is tragic to invest oneself in the life of another 
is to find oneself ultimately powerless, to find, to find oneself limit, uh, limited, solely under the authority of the forces of nature. Just ask the mother whose, child, uh, whose child's behavior is out of control. Or the widower that's alone for the first time after 60 years. Or the 50-year-old unmarried person that's sick of coming home every night to microwave dinners and sports center. Or a young boy who grieves because his dog was hit by a car. We're limited, limited beings. And as such, we experience the tragedy. So what we do is we become hostile to our situations. We become hostile to our limitations. We try to control our own behavior and the behavior of others around us. We try to manipulate our, system, our systems. We try to become masters of our own fates and captains of our own souls. If you're from Oklahoma, you know what I'm referring to there. This is 2023. We are evolved people, advanced. Technology should help us with some of our problems. Science should be the, question, the answer to some of our questions. Medicine should make us feel better in every case. Now that we are sophisticated, we should be able to behave in a better, more appropriate manner. We are, after all, thoughtful, prudent, reflective, careful people. But while we act like this on Sunday, we forget about it on Friday, and our honest selves and our true selves are revealed and in our angst and our anxiety and our fears and addictions, we crucify the Son of God. Maybe, maybe Jesus is right. Maybe Jesus is right. Maybe we do not know what we are doing. We, we don't know what we're doing in this life. We think we should know. After all, the serpent in the garden promised us, if you eat this fruit, you will become wise like God you'll be able to see the difference between good and evil. And what did we see when we ate the fruit? We are ugly, naked bodies. And we've had to cover ourselves up because the tragedy is just too much to take. But the truth of the matter is, when it's truly out there, we're naked. We're shamed. Our efforts to manage this tragedy that we call humanity has done nothing for us. And once that truth is exposed, we think maybe, Maybe no one else will know about our tragic lives. Maybe we'll dive into the bushes, try to cover ourselves up with fig leaves. Maybe we can even strip somebody else down to his birthday suit, hanging him out there for all the world to see so that no one can see that we are naked and we are ashamed. Maybe that's the way that we can keep the lid on this whole truth, the truth of this whole thing. But as usual, never turns out like we think it's going to turn out. It turns out that Jesus is right, and we were wrong. We don't understand. By nailing the Son of God to the cross, we didn't shut anything down. We thought it would be the end of it. We thought that we could move on with our pursuits and shield the tragedy. But instead, the opposite happened. And the truth is revealed on the cross. We are shamed. Then, in an ironic turn of events, we learn that we are shamed by grace. When Jesus prays, they have no idea what they were doing. He exposed us. He exposed our nakedness and our shame and our lack of self-control. The tragedy that is to be human is revealed for all of the universe to see. 
there is nowhere now for us to hide. Who we are in that moment was made clear for everybody to see, including the Holy Trinity. When Jesus says the words of the Father, the cosmos grabs its chest in horror, aghast to what creation has become and what it has done. And when I was a kid, preachers would talk all the time about what would happen at the end of time. My thought was that after my death, I was going to stand there in front of this, in front of creation with this uh, film on roll on a, on a planet-sized movie screen, and everyone would see what I had done during my life. My mother and father would see it, my wife would see it, my Sunday school teacher would see it. But in the cross, there is no need for the screen at the end of time because there it was, there in the middle of time. It is this thing called the cross, and our life's film was rolling. And with these, with these words, the main actor said, the cosmos sees who you really are. We're exposed. Naked once again. There's no more hiding. Who we really are is revealed. Our shame is splattered out there for everybody to see. We're like a mob. A mob that strung him up and then smiled for the photo. It becomes clear. What we are is evil. What we have done is evil, pure evil. When we attempt to change the tragic, instead we intensify the tragic by grabbing hold of that power to attack and destroy the good that God intended. And when we realize what we have done, we stand aghast. We may not have fully realized it until this moment, but Jesus, the Son of God, even before we realized it, he does. And he says to the Father, they don't understand what they're doing. And when we hear these words, we finally do understand. Most of the time, people should know what they've done before they receive forgiveness. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And most of the time, I don't usually like to get let people off the hook unless they've said, I'm sorry. Most of the time, people should know what they've done before they receive forgiveness. Ignorance and forgiveness, this is not exactly a likely combination. These things don't usually go together. However, in this moment, the moment on the cross, even before we were able to get it, forgiveness was extended to us, even in the midst of our tragedy. Early in his ministry, Jesus asked his disciples and asked us to learn how to pray for our enemies. But we can't do it, and we don't do it. We don't pray for our boss, or our ex, or the bully in the playground, or even our political leaders. But Jesus, in this prayer, con confronts us and confronts the world with the intention that God had for humanity and the way that the world was intended to be. He prays for his enemies. He prays for us. In the power of this prayer, Jesus offers us his own person which was the only way to redeem us from the tragic. In other words, Jesus steps into the tragedy. That is being human, and he does so to redeem the tragic. And there Jesus hangs. He's on a cross. He's been beaten, insulted, and he's stark naked. And as the scene unfolds before us, we peek into a conversation that has been happening in a secret place. It's private. It's intimate. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. We are listening to God talk. Jesus begins to speak God language. 
a language that is foreign to us, a language that only God can understand. It's the language of forgiveness. You should forgive them. Father, they have no idea what they're doing. But Jesus knows. And he knows not only what we're doing, but he knows what he is doing. And He understands as we do what we do, that he also at the very same time also understands that we are more, more than the worst thing that we've ever done. Notice that Jesus doesn't say anything to us in this text. This is a conversation between the Trinity. He never says anything about the fact that our lives are tragic. He doesn't have to do that. But in the sacrificial move, he doesn't, he doesn't, do, he doesn't label us or call us out. He doesn't scold us or blame us or shame us. All of that is there, but Jesus doesn't do it. What Jesus does is he empowers us to see us as we really are, that we're naked and that we're ashamed. And then he sees us now shamed by his grace. He shares in this tragedy what it means to be human. And this is the way of grace. This is, the, this is how we get saved. Jesus understood what it took to sacrifice what real sacrifice looked like, what love poured out for us to reveal who we are, and to that we say, even as we look at the cross, thanks be to God. Friends, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to the communion table, but this week and this morning as I was praying, I just kind of felt like the Lord say to me, ask the people to see themselves as who they are, and then to see themselves as I see them. And in doing so, then be willing to give their lives over to me. Tell the people that they can tell the people that they can pray and receive forgiveness. And I will give them the power to follow me. So that I do today. I, I feel like I heard God say, invite the people to receive my forgiveness. So it's there. It's offered to you. So before you come to the table of our Lord, I would like you to do some searching, if you would, to face up to the real you, and if you choose to receive the love and forgiveness that comes to you via the God who is on the cross. And just, a few, just a few minutes ago, we said, to, we said to one another, and we said out loud, that we need God's grace and we need each other. And so uh, this is, these are not just words we say. This is actually a truth revealed to us. So, after you've taken a moment to reflect, I want to invite you to the Lord's table. And I want to invite you to the Lord's table because this is the place, as we've said many, many times before, it is the place where Jesus embodied the work that he was about to do on the cross by offering the bread and the cup to his enemies, those who would betray him later on that night. So each week I tell you the story, and it goes like this. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed by those he came to save, took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood, and whenever you drink it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. This table is a table by which uh, we find salvation. It's salvific. It's where forgiveness can happen. It's where our lives could be made whole. It's the place where... It's a foreshadowing of the cross so that we might be able to receive every good thing that God has for us. 
So I want to invite you to this table by reminding you that this is not a Nazarene table. This is a family table. This is not a church, uh, the church of the Nazarene table or an 8th Street table. This is Jesus' table. And Jesus uh, has opened it up to all who would be willing to uh, yield themselves to the surprising work of forgiveness that comes by God through Christ on the cross. So we want no barriers. I want to let you know our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. But I invite you to come down our center aisle. And I invite you to come with your hands cupped ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because this, this forgiveness, it's a gift. And we cannot take a gift. We can only receive it. So receive what is being offered to you. Come to one of these servers, approach what they ha- approach them, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and then you can go back on the outside aisles to return back to your seat. If for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle or you need assistance, please just wave at Macy. She's over here, and she would love to bring you the elements. So, friends, I invite you to a table of forgiveness and grace. And so when you are ready, please come. Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they've heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find the episode to the practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.